Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. My name is Patrick Francie, and I'm the CEO and managing partner of the Real Estate Investment Network. In addition to being a business owner, I'm also a real estate investor. I'm a coach, a husband, recently a grandfather. Now, along with that, I'm also committed to stretching beyond what I've achieved by continuing to elevate in living a fulfilled life by making a positive difference in my world. I'm going to invite you to join me as I delve into the details of the many wins of my guests in achieving their goals, along with, shall we say, the frustrations of the occasional deal gone wrong, because my guests are here to help you learn by talking about what's real for them in business and investing in real estate, from the life they're now able to live to the person they become along the way as they pursued their dreams in having the freedom they've gained by building a sustainable financial future for them and their family. Good day, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to this episode of the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. As always, before I introduce my next guest, I want to start by saying thank you to you, the listener, for your feedback to the show, as well as remind and encourage you to send any of your comments, your suggestions, or your questions to CEO at RainCanada.com. That's directly to me at CEO at RainCanada.com. Love it when I hear from you. And if you're inclined, I'd definitely appreciate it if you were to rate the show and comment on iTunes or Stitcher or whatever platform you happen to use to listen in. In addition to all of that, please follow us on the Everyday Millionaire Facebook page. So thank you again for the feedback that you do provide the Everyday Millionaire team and I. It is sincerely appreciated. Okay, so let's get this show started. My guest today is a friend, somebody I've known for a number of years. He lives in Ontario in Toronto, and his name is Frank Felico. He's a realtor. He's a real estate investor. He's an entrepreneur extraordinaire. He's got a great story really philosophical in life, in business. And I know he's going to have a lot to share with us today, and we're going to dig into a number of things. So just a little bit of background on Frank. When he started out, one of his first business experiences was when Home Depot came to Canada. He was part of the team that actually opened the first store up in Canada. And in that time, the fact that Home Depot was launching into the country was really something pretty historic. And it's where Frank learned the power of, you know, things like organization and his sales training, supplier relations, all of the things that come along with a large corporation moving into, you know, a country and getting to be a part of it. So he's always been quite entrepreneurial and his first foray into business was based on his love and his passion for music and his interest in the music industry. And in 1995, a childhood buddy of his and he partnered up and they created a music label. And together they actually enjoyed some pretty great success to the degree that in 1999 they were nominated for a Juno and not long after that they produced a gold selling record in Canada which was really awesome because it was the first of its kind in that particular genre of music. So I'm going to talk to Frank about that as well because it's so interesting given where he is today. In 2001, Frank combined his love of sports with his commitment to his own health and he moved into the fitness industry. And it's where he used all of his background and his resources, his business savvy that he had developed in the music industry to eventually become an owner and a partner in a chain of retail stores that were located in Ontario called The Fitness Source. He and his partners grew that 
business to 13 store locations. And aside from the bricks and mortar locations, they also had a very uh, strong online presence along with the commercial relationships that they had. So like most small business owners, Frank was responsible for all of the operations and collectively he and his partners wore just a lot of hats as entrepreneurs do. And he was really focused and took a stand for really being an integrity-based business. That was his mission, his vision, how he trained his staff, how he developed his managers. And he just took it on. He got really focused and jumped into the trenches to learn and really grow the business. At the end of the day, that all paid off. In 2008, their retail business was purchased by the Forzani Group, SportCheck, SportMark, that whole organization. And as much as he stayed on as a regional manager through the transition, it was really the end of that era and into the next, which was into real estate. And over the past 10 years, Frank's evolved and been involved in various levels of real estate, both personally and from an investor point of view. He's a realtor and it really spoke to him in terms of being drawn into the industry and hence he wears the realtor and real estate investor hat and got lots on the go. So I want to dig into all of what Frank has going on, where he is today, and as importantly, how he got here. So without any further delay, I want to welcome our guest, Mr. Frank Folico. Welcome to the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. I'm sitting here in uh, the beautiful Fraser Valley in my Everyday Millionaire Poolside Studio. The the grace and the beauty of technology allows me to uh, have this conversation, and I get to enjoy you know your your handsome face. So, listen, buddy, welcome to the show. I appreciate it. I take any compliments I can get these days. <laughs> yeah. And I got to just say that ever since you invited me on the show and even just leading up to this week, I've been pretty excited about this conversation. A, because I always enjoy speaking to you. You always add something to the conversation that I haven't thought about before. And B, it pushes me to actually imagine things that I haven't thought about in quite some time. So I was looking forward to it. it for several days now. So I'm glad we finally got a chance to do this. Well, that's awesome, buddy. And you know something, I've known you for a few years now and we see you at Ray meetings and I've had an opportunity to do a little bit of traveling with you. We went to a car show in Carmel and uh, got to hang out and, and enjoy some cars together, some passion for you know amazing, amazingly nice vehicles and uh, have some fun along the way. So uh, some cool things and some cool opportunities that you and I have shared in. Now, Absolutely. I always find that with my guests, you know, their bios are pretty straightforward and they talk about what they do and all of the rest of it. But, you know, these days in a, you know, in a short, what I call you know, just an elevator pitch. If somebody, you know, says, Hey Frank, uh, nice to meet you. What do you do? What's your, do you have an answer to that question in a, in a kind of a short snippet or how do you answer that question? So essentially I keep it always real simple. I'm involved in real estate. I'm a family man. And my passion is trying to match opportunities with people. That's my 10, 15 second pitch just about to anybody. And then it usually gets them obviously curious and they'll say, well, what kind of real estate do you do or what developments? Or tell me a little bit more about your family or it'll, the conversation will lend itself in, uh, based on what I've said in a certain direction. And, and that's what I love because that's who I am. I might, I might be business, but I'm also a lot of emotional stuff as well. We're human beings, right? So. That's why I usually start the conversation with that two-pronged approach. 
So you, you know, the real estate world has been the game that you've played, I think for what, about the past 10 years. Is that correct? Correct. Yes. Yeah. So it wasn't always that. Now, give me a little bit of background. You currently, you're Italian by, by culture and, and heritage. You were born in Canada. I was born in downtown Toronto, Toronto general. Yeah. My, my family immigrated from Italy in the late sixties, namely essentially my grandparents wanted to come to New York, but they weren't allowing Italians in at that time. And Toronto ended up becoming their second choice because there was a slew of people coming from their hometown here. So we always joked around the dinner table growing up that I could have easily been part of an American family living in New York and likely would have shaped my world completely differently than, than who I became. And, and essentially a lot of who I am, I kind of attribute, and I'm sure many people are like this, to those conversations that we had around the dinner table growing up where, you know, I saw how much sacrifices my parents had to make just to come to this country. And it was instilled in us, my brother as well, that don't squander the opportunity that we've tried to create for you. And, and they really did make a lot of sacrifices. And it was a moral it was more moral direction that we were given more than any other education was to say, hey, look how much we're trying to do for the family. Please make an effort to, to not just sit on it and, and see if you can expand on it. And that's that's a little bit of the upbringing that I had that kind of, I think, started the path that I think this conversation might take us on. Now, what did your when you when your parents immigrated to Canada? What did your dad do? What is what are your parents? What did, did they have a trade? Did they open a business? Did they go to work? What did they do when they got here? So my dad was a youngster. He was uh, he was still in high school, but he had a part time job at Honest Ed's, and and my dad interacted with Honest Ed's often. And Honest Ed's was a staple in Toronto, major corner at Bathurst and Bloor, a retail shop. So. You got to imagine during that period of time, there weren't any malls in Toronto. A lot of the retail shopping was predominantly done on major streets like Bloor or College Street or St. Clair. And it was a major hub for shopping. And, and his part-time job was there. And I remember you know, when, I, when I started growing up, he told me about those first jobs that he had. And my mother, she was a seamstress. So she came to the country, obviously not knowing the language, not having really a formal education, either one of them. So she went into making drapes with my aunt and they were very humble beginnings. I remember, you know, we didn't have much on our table in the sense of luxuries that maybe I enjoy today, but we had a lot of love and, and a lot of just moral direction is, is kind of what I equated to. But those, that was my, first, my dad's first job. And he ended up becoming an electrician after taking, um, a lot of courses, and then he, he started to go into that world. And I saw, again, very laborious work and how beat up and tired he was every day. Now, I relate that kind of a family upbringing, those morals and values. I relate that to a, a heritage or the your Italian heritage. Is is that the case? Did you Were you raised in the, really in a strong Italian, you know, with that strong Italian roots and background? Absolutely. And I can tell you, my dad was um, a soft-spoken guy, and often it was more of what he didn't say than what he did say that would lend itself. And what I mean by that is, we've heard this saying a million times, actions speak louder than words. All I ever saw from my family was that they put, they put themselves behind what was important for the kids and bringing us up. 
So it wasn't important for my dad to have the fancy clothes or the, or the car. Like, I almost never saw my dad spending money on himself of any kind. Same with my mother. It was almost the philosophy was we, we do what we do to push the family forward. And one day you'll pay it forward to your kids is the way that I was instilled. So it was never about them. And I saw it in my grandparents. I saw it in my parents. And often they say, you know, that those generations are some of the most incredible generations that humanity has ever brought up, the baby boomers and their parents. And I saw it firsthand, obviously, being in a family like that, where everything was about paying it forward and a very selfless upbringing from their part. And, and that's what was instilled with me. And I'm sure there's a lot of cultures that probably had that during that time. And in the Italian community, it was family first. You always put your family ahead of your own wishes. And of course, in Toronto, I mean, the whole Italian, uh, I mean, there's such a large Italian community and population. There was, I remember many years ago, I, I want to say in the late 80s, early 90s, there was some conversation, you know, because Italians were known for their bricklaying. And, and of course, Toronto was booming and they were immigrating into that area in record numbers. And the population, just uh, the Italian popula population blew up. So, I mean, an interesting tidbit. I, I, I found it at that time kind of interesting uh, just how big a deal it was. Yeah. And to expand on that, and I don't know if I have my facts correct here, but at one point, Toronto had more Italians in its city than any other city outside of Italy. Right. So the most most populated um, Italian-based city outside of, obviously, the motherland was Toronto, even more than New York or Chicago or some of those other cities. And, you know, a lot of that, I remember, again, talking at the dinner table, how much, uh, you know, natural prejudice was there when they first migrated over and some of the stuff that they dealt with. And, and one of the reasons why the Italian community, I think, became so you know, to themselves was because they obviously figured that they need to do for themselves if they're going to make something for themselves. And it wasn't until later, I think, that they expanded out of those communities. But I remember for the longest time, countless people in my family, and there were a lot of them here in Toronto, I would say literally in the hundreds of people that migrated over to Italy that were, you know, part of family, aunts, cousins, first cousins, learning how to speak English. So they would go to the bakery, everyone spoke Italian. They went to the lawyers, it would be everyone spoke Italian. In fact, I didn't really learn how to speak English till I was in senior kindergarten. So it was such a umbrella or, you know, bubble, if you will, that up until I went to school, I had no real grasp of the English language or the Canadian culture because I was segregated within my own community. And, and that was an eye-opening experience for sure to get to get to school and start learning how to speak English. Yeah, you're pretty immersed in it. Even though I was born, even though I, yeah, even though I was born here, I, I didn't learn how to speak English until I was like four or five. Yeah. So okay, so let's talk a little bit about you know what's evolved for you now. You know, as you sit here today, you're you're you've had a, a lot of great success in your life. You've accomplished a lot of really cool things. Although you're in the real estate world now, it wasn't always that way. There was a, a time, you know, that you, I want to know a little bit about your entrepreneurial background, your business background and how that evolved because your dad came over, he immigrated, he was a tradesperson. I guess your mom was a bit of an entrepreneur with your aunt and the drape making business. And that was, that was what they did there. Where do you think you got your entrepreneurial spirit from? And did you, what did you do for work and in, in, in jobs before getting into the world of business and entrepreneurialism? So I can tell you, 
And and I did spend a little time about thinking about this when we first um, said that we were going to speak. The first time I really think I got the entrepreneurial bug was when my fa- my father was telling me about a story about how when he came, obviously, to Canada and he was working and he had a chance to get involved in a business opportunity. At that time, it was only about $10,000 worth to invest in in this company that made Canadian starter drives. So starter drives for for cars, solenoids, things of that kind of thing. Sure. And what he said to me was that because I was born and they had just gotten a mortgage that he was afraid to take the chance. Anyway, he ended up working for the gentleman that owned the company called Canadian Starter Drives. And that gentleman ended up becoming a millionaire. And my dad was just his blue collar electrician that happened to work for him in the factory. They could have ended up becoming partners, but because my father was a little bit afraid and didn't take that chance, he ended up playing second fiddle, if you were. And he told me that story at a real young age. I think I was in my early teens. And what resonated with me was, here's a man that came from Italy. His parents came on a boat. They had no recollection. Like He took so many chances to get here. And I call it like the final yard. And then that final yard, when it was like one more chance to take, to become an entrepreneur, he put the brakes on because the fear bug caught him. Mm-hmm. And it was about the same summers that I started working part-time with him in this factory. Now, I was only in grade six or seven, something like that. But I got to tell you, it smelled bad. It was noisy. It was hard factory work. Now, he was the electrician overseeing things. But nonetheless, you know, when he used to drive me home at night, he used to say, you could either end up like me or like somebody that you want to be. And that was the first time that I realized that I need to take, and you can tell that's a bit emotional for me, but that I need to take chances. So from that point on, I was always driven by one beacon, which is if somebody says it can't be done, even if it's you, stop listening to him. Hmm. He didn't take these chances and he regretted it. And I didn't want to have any of those regrets. So when I was, you know, at an early age, I was taking music, which is a a really big part of, I think, of how my brain works, because music always instills a certain creative aspect to to an approach versus just like a business-like manner. And at a real young age, I was at uh, the Royal Conservatory for Music, learning how to play music. And I ended up becoming more and more interested in just following that passion. And I ended up buying some studio equipment because I wanted to record music. It wasn't just enough to play it. I wanted to record it. I wanted to be a part of it. And I think when I was about 18 or 19, me and a couple of friends put together a demo tape that we started circulating around our city. Unfortunately, that demo tape was taken as that, just a demo tape, not very serious. People said, hey, you know, great, try again. So what we did is put our heads together and started our own record company. and. I'm kind of fast forwarding a bit here, but what ended up happening was based on these take a chance philosophies and my passion, we turned that demo tape, the exact same music. We just went to uh, a place called the Lacquer Channel, which was a vinyl producing plant, and we turned our demo tape into an actual record. Nothing else changed other than the presentation. So we started going down to New York City, getting in the back of a van and just driving out to every DJ every New York radio personality that would play us. And we just started getting some momentum. And those record sales turned into us being able to become our own business. 
And we started having success in different parts of the world, like London. And we had a publishing deal then in London, England. And we, we ended up having records being played in Japan. And this small little record company called Knowledge of Self Records started making a buzz. Now, keep in mind, we're, we're going back a bit. We're talking like 1990, 91, before the internet, before any of that stuff. So how old were you back then? Right? Like, give, me a, give me an age, because you're still a young guy. I was uh, 18 at that age. Sure. Okay. And listen, I got to tell you, you know, when I sat down with my folks and said, I'm going to New York to uh, try and push records, they looked at me like I was speaking a foreign language. And I could tell that my parents had a certain trust in me that even though they didn't feel that it was the right move, they didn't feel confident about, you know, sending their youngster out there. One thing that they always had was confidence in my decision making, meaning that I wasn't one of those kids that just flew off the handle or did things without thinking them through. So we ended up, like I said, about 18, 19 being down there. And one thing led to another. And by the time we were, I would say, my early 20s, 21, 22, we were part of the number one record in the country with an artist named Shaw Claire. We got a gold record out of it. And we were nominated for a Juno that year. Now, and I'm not connecting a lot of dots here, but I can remember vividly having a conversation with with my friends in the basement of my house where the studio was before we had ventured on this. And we basically plotted out that we wanted to be part of the number one act in the country. And at the time, nobody knew us. You know what I mean? It was, it was a very, you know, shoot for the sky kind of philosophy. But it, again, it was just one of those things of thinking, if you can think it, you can achieve it. And, and we just took that approach. And they said, we started selling records more and more record companies got interested in us. And that was the real first taste that I had as an entrepreneur, not really knowing what I didn't know, but willing to take chances and learn along the way because there was nobody teaching us how to become a record company. And it was all about research. And I remember one of the first things that we did is research is we took down the addresses of every single record label that was producing records in Manhattan at the time so we could go visit them and pick people's brains. That's what we did on one trip. Nothing but talk to people. So that was the that was the kind of the slow way of doing your research and uh, and getting to what it you know getting the answers that you needed because of course like you say back then it wasn't you could Google and get all the answers you needed to the research that you needed to do and and the answers to the questions that you might have had yet yeah, really had to do it manually slash physically be there. Totally, and 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 I was submerged. I, I can't take credit for this. I mean, I'm really just a product of my environment. I mean, at the time, I had a part-time job at Home Depot. And I was fortunate enough to be part of the first Home Depot in the country. Now, at that time, Home Depot was a pretty special organization in the sense that they were trying to break into the country. They had success in the U.S. And they were trying to break into to the country. And I was a part-time kid learning every day some of the skill sets that it takes to get an organization off the ground. Now, if you ask me when I was 18, did I know that the two would be synonymous with one another? Not exactly, but I was submersed in that philosophy every day. Sales training, marketing, the way you spoke to people, the way you speak to customers. And they weren't just customers. You know, they taught us that they were people. And at the end of the day, people are walking in the door and they want something. And the quicker you can get them to something, the quicker they will buy from you. And, and being submersed in all that, allowed me, I think, to translate it inadvertently, not even knowing, into the music I was doing. Because at the time, I could tell you honestly, I didn't connect the two. I, I was looking at Home Depot almost like a chore in the sense that 
I got to, I need some money in my pocket. So I got to do this. I, I didn't really see the learning aspect, but I was learning, not even realizing that I was learning. And I was able to apply that then. And to be honest with you, I still apply a lot of those skill sets today in everything I do. So it, it is, it really is, philosophy. yeah, it really is a case of, you know, we learn what we learn as we go along and we're always bringing those lessons forward and either expanding on them or actually not even expanding on them, using them for other opportunities that we create for ourselves. Now, just take a little bit, because I want to kind of finish that, you know, that part of your journey. Now, what happened to the record company? You, you, you're not doing that now. You've had some, some success at it. You won an award or got a nomination, but so where, where did that end up? Where did, how did that come to an end? So the good news is it, it didn't come to an end. So I still do music, believe it or not. Oh, cool. And more as, more as a hobby than anything else. But one thing that I was always really good about myself is just being intuitive with my emotional balance. So I was always really big that when it stops feeling good or there's issues around it, that I got to address it. So one of the things that was very important for me while I was doing music, a major goal in my life was to have my own family, to have a place that I call home, to, you know, to eventually be a father, to be a husband. All those things were always very high on my wish list of things I wanted. And there was a crossroads in my life about the age of 22, 23, when we were getting some pretty good success. And there was an opportunity and a set of opportunities for me to relocate and go to New York and continue pursuing this music idea. And I got to tell you, Patrick, that the more I started going down the music hole, the more empty it started to feel. Mm. Meaning we were traveling from city to city. But as I was traveling from city to city, I knew a lot of people, but I didn't have a lot of good relationships. And what I mean by good relationships were profound, deep relationships, meaning people that I could actually count on. They were more like acquaintances. And I started feeling like the music lifestyle was a bit of a gypsy lifestyle. It was exciting, but at the time, I was dating a girl that I had known since I was 16, so now I was 22, 23, and I had been with her for you know seven years, and I give her a lot of credit because that girl ended up becoming my wife, and now she's the mother of my two kids, and we had a lot of conversations about where does your music start and stop? How do you feel about where our future is going in your future, and where are we going to end up being? And my mind for the longest time, when I was in grade school and high school, I was taught to play chess. And my math teacher was an incredible chess player. And he was also the coach of the chess team. And the reason I'm digressing here a little bit is to kind of give you a sense of how my thought process works and where I ended up. He used to beat me every single time we played. And I was a pretty good chess player, but I could never beat him. Mr. Mikhailovich, his name was. And he said, you know, Frank, the reason why you lose all the time is, and before he finished the statement. I said, well, it's because you're better than me. And he said, well, yeah, that's the obvious answer. But the, the real reason is because you think two or three steps ahead. And I think about seven or eight or nine steps ahead. So mathematically speaking, you will never be able to beat me because you don't vet your move quite as far as I might vet my move. And what he said to me as I was playing, he said, you know, chess is not a game. It's more like life. The way you vet your decisions and the people around you, the quality of that life will depend on how many moves ahead are you looking at your moves. 
And he taught me a very valuable lesson that to this day, I look at and say, okay, I put myself in the shoes of a Frank that would have even more success in music and even further down. And so I started looking at my life in three, five, eight years stages and say, if I had the hottest record, not just in Canada now, but worldwide, and I had even more money and I had a bigger house and I had this and I had, would I be any happier? And the answer was no. And and then I started saying, well, what would make you happier in three or five years? And the answer started to become real simple. If I had a beautiful relationship with my wife, if I had kids and I created an environment that we all excelled in. And I didn't quite see that with music at the time. And, and that made the decision pretty easy for me to say, okay, you know what? It doesn't have to leave me as far as what I do every day. So I still do music every day. But I don't necessarily have to make it my profession and how I count on the next moves of my life. And so what I ended up doing was spending, a, I, I remember that summer was a very soul-searching summer for me. And um, it was the summer that I realized that the other passion, and I'm always believing in chasing passions, the other big passion in my life was fitness. I always stayed in shape. I always worked out at least, you know, four or five times a week. And I decided to pursue a world of teaching other people about fitness and getting involved in fitness. And I was fortunate enough to land a job. Sorry, go ahead. So I want to, yeah, I want to, I, I don't want to go forward on the fitness aspect because that's another phase of your life. I want to go back to, you know, just, I want to just finish the conversation around what you did in the music industry, because what I'm hearing in all of this is that you had a passion for music. And I'm sure in that world, you know, there must've been a draw of the glitz and the glamour and the, the big names. And I mean, it, it's a, it's a world that I see. And, and this is my view of it. I've not been in that world, but my view of that world is that there's a lot of ego, a lot of uh, personality in, in that world. Would that be the case? Absolutely. And you know, the old cliche that you're only as good as your rat last record has, a, is very true in the music industry. So it's a very trendy hip business. It's sexy. It's cool. But the caveat to that is that it's not very long lived. And I, again, being submersed in that world, when I was going to different cities, whether it be Paris, London, I mean, we worked with some of the biggest names on the planet. You know, Nelly Furtado was one of them. Um, you know, very big DJs that as I encountered them, there was a sadness in them in the sense that they, yes, they chased their dream. Yes, they chased their passion. And yet they were still very sad. And a lot of it was because the music industry, as much as it's giving, is consuming you. So it, it's one of those love-hate scenarios where it was depleting a lot of the people around me. And they were a few years you know, further into it than I was. And I kept saying to myself, I don't want to end up like this guy or that gal. And saying they have everything, and yet they're really sad because they don't really have everything. They, they did chase their passion. In the sense of the way they chase their passion, the business side of it consumed them. Namely because, and this is a pivotal point in the thinking, 90% of the artists, if not 100, get into the industry because of their passion. But the business does not exist because of people's passion. So there's always vultures around, meaning the business side of the music industry was not guys that were necessarily passionate about it, but looking to make a buck off of it. And there's a very big difference there because... And, you know, a lot of times business is pretty cut and dry. Hey, you want to buy this item? Great cost analysis. But if you talk to an artist about their piece of music, like it's a commodity, 
it's a very different feeling than somebody who just created a computer and is about to sell it to you. So I learned a very valuable lesson in music that when you're selling something, it's very important to identify exactly what you're selling. And for most people, their music was like somebody's child. Could you put a price tag on your child? For a lot of people, obviously, it's unimaginable. You could not. And for a lot of musicians, putting a price tag on their music was imaginable. They couldn't get it. And for the longest time, I was one of those type of artists where I couldn't imagine someone saying, well, your piece of music is only worth this. Well, what do you mean? And then they start equating it to how many records you've sold and that. So I would say, Patrick, that the fact that it was depleting everybody around me, and even though they were very successful, started to get me thinking about where I wanted to end up being emotionally, personally, and financially. And the equation for me started to change as far as how dependent I would be on music, at least from a financial aspect, because from an emotional aspect, I can tell you it's still a very big part of who I am. In fact, every time I put the kids down, I'm in my basement studio creating still. It's the way my mind works. It, therapeutic, I almost call it. So then, uh, you know, you know, some, so let me just interrupt here a little bit, Frank, because I get that aspect of it. But, you know, what I'm picking up from all of this and, and what I'm hearing is that, you know, the important part is, yeah, you know, you, you were actually living your passion, uh, you know, the, the enticement of, you know, the, the glitz, the glamour, the name, the money, all of those things. But I, what I'm hearing from you is ultimately you weren't prepared, you know, you wanted to do what you love to do, which is your, your music, your passion, but you weren't prepared to uh, sacrifice your soul, if that's the right term, to live that passion and to take it, you know, to take it to where, you know, what seemed to be the norm in the industry. And so that's a kind of a statement of character as well. And, and the reason I want to shine a light on that, because as I've gotten to know you over the years and who I see you and what I see you've accomplished, that's actually a pivotal part of the character of Frank Felico and what you and how you make decisions. So, you know, I just wanted to shine a light on all of that. I think that story is important and is and is kind of interesting and fascinating as I find that story in that I'm seeing more of a statement of character that was part of your evolution, which helped you achieve a lot of the results that you've achieved in your life, even as of today. You know what? You, your choice of words is incredible because I would say selling your soul is essentially what it felt like sometimes. Mm -hmm. And I think, I think not just in music, but a lot of times people are faced with decisions or deals that they need to make where there might be a compromise of integrity to make a few extra dollars or a compromise in the way you might treat people in order to get a deal done. And as far as I could always remember, I'm about looking at the money will come if you do the right things, but the right things have got to have meaning to you personally, right? And there's always a set of choices that we make and compromises along the way, but they don't necessarily need to sacrifice the entire integrity of who you want to be as an individual. And, and I think that that is a very important lesson. I think for anybody that is chasing what they define as success, money is a very big, important part of that equation for some people, but it's not the entirety. Of it. Can't be the driver. Me, it just can't be the driver. I think it, it's take, it takes a little bit of, uh, for most, it just takes some, some years under your belt to realize that, you know, the money is, is a nice result of being able to live a great life and your passion and, and really being true to who you are, not selling your soul, for example, or compromising your identity and the integrity of who you are 
for the for the dollars that you're trying to trying to create. Absolutely, and and I think that you know, looking back, I can say with you know full heart that I have no no regrets about the decision. In fact, I feel that if I could make that same decision again, it would be the exact same decision. Right. Right. And so, so along the decision, so you're, you're going for music and I want to, I want to keep us moving forward into some other things because you've accomplished a lot of stuff in your life and, and there's so much, uh, so many lessons and so much wisdom in, in your stories and what you're bringing forward. So, you know, your athleticism is, is quite high. You're, you're, you're quite athletic. You're not a big guy, but you are, you are certainly athletic. And I know that one of your passions is basketball and, and you've done a lot of those things, but along your journey, you know, physical fitness and training and, and was always part of what you did. Now, then you broke into, and you continued on another business and you got into the fitness industry. So give me a little bit of the background that led to that. And then, uh, the conclusion. So there was a lot of what you brought forward in your learning from the music industry into your next entrepreneurial endeavor. And that happened to be around fitness. Share with me a little bit about that. So having, you know, that crossroad discussion with my wife and, uh, at the time she was just my girlfriend, but what was always important to me was I can't sell really. I'm not a very good salesperson at all. And what I mean by that is unless I genuinely believe in what I'm presenting to somebody myself, meaning I would take it on, I couldn't sell it. So I started to look at other aspects of my world that I was very passionate about. And as you said, fitness was a, was a big one. I mean, some of the early days of me playing basketball, again, just being submersed with people that wanted to win. We happened to be part of a high school that was one of the top collegiate schools in the country for basketball. And we were often, um, you know, our pedigree was people would come from all over the GDA to play in our school. Now, I was always surrounded by this winning mentality of if you're disciplined, if you're structured and you put in the time, the wins will come. So I started translating that into, well, how can I apply that in an actual way in the real world? And I was fortunate enough to meet somebody that had started an organization called the Fitness Depot. And at the time, Fitness Depot had very lofty goals. They wanted to be the number one fitness chain in Canada. Now, at the time, I believe they only had, I think, four or five stores in the GTA at first. Their sales division was very intense, almost like a boiler room type of sales training. I don't know if you ever watched that movie, um, you know, where they sell stocks and, you know, they're trying to hustle people. So I felt I was learning a new way of selling that I was never accustomed to. And I felt that there was a lack of integrity around it. So people would be sold stuff in that environment. If they came in, the number one goal was you better close them. And I looked at them strangely because I never felt that fitness was something that you need to close somebody on. It just makes sense for you to want to have a body that you take care of, mind, spirit, soul, all those things were important to me. But I felt that they were selling the public something of a misconstrued thing, which is, you know, hey, if you buy this treadmill, you're going to get in shape and your life is going to be better. And, and my position was completely different. I would start with people and ask them, well, what do you do now? Because the treadmill is just an object. If you're not prepared mentally to want to take care of your body, whether it's walking down the street, picking up a skipping rope, you don't necessarily have to buy something to be fit. But 
you enjoy eating it. And this is one of the examples I used to give people. You might enjoy a good steak and you might have a barbecue, but you'll still take somebody out to a restaurant. Why? Because you enjoy a good steak. So I just started getting immersed in the philosophy of changing how sales work in the corporate environment. And, you know, we were taught the seven steps to a sale and how to close people and how to handle objections. And I'm a very astute learner. So I have that all under my belt. But I guess where I'm going with this, Patrick, is I felt a disconnect from an integrity standpoint between me and the organization I was working for. In my in my in my retail business, you know, in Edmonton and Alberta, we you know, we train the team around what we call an integrity based sale. So anytime that you're selling somebody that suits their needs as opposed to selling them something, whether it suits their needs or not. And we often are, you know, in, in the world of sports, as you know, people are wanting to come in and they think, a you know, a $500 item is better than a $300 item. And, and that may be the case, but the reality of it is spend 300 bucks because it's all you really need. There's no point in selling in spending 500 and you're actually guiding them to the right choice, which we would call an integrity based sale, as opposed to a sale at all costs and, you know, blowing out the most expensive or the highest inventory item. And you, and you hit the nail on the head. And I can tell you on many occasions, people that would leave this retail environment would be driving home and regretting what they just bought. Didn't feel and, good about it. You know, if I, and not feel good. And I'll tell you one small story that actually happened um, because I think it's relevant to the conversation. I was sitting behind the counter and the manager of the store, who is the, obviously responsible for training, was dealing with a gentleman and he, uh, Indian culture, which, you know, very proud culture as well. And the gentleman had come in to, to look at a very expensive treadmill. I think it was about $4,000 product. And as he comes up to the counter, the gentleman says, you know what? Give me a card and I'm going to check with my wife. And I think, uh, you know, we'll circle back and see what happens. But I'll tell you what the manager ended up doing. The manager turned to the gentleman with a plain face and basically said to him, who works in the family? And the gentleman says, well, I do. My wife stays at home. And he says, well, let me get this straight. You need to go home and check with your wife how you spend the money that you make because I just want to get this straight. So this is the way the manager speaking to this client. And I, and I was like shocked. I was kind of sitting back saying, am I really hearing what I'm hearing here? So the manager continues to say, hey, listen, I just want to get the story straight that you like the treadmill. You want the treadmill. You have enough money for the treadmill. You earn the money for the treadmill, but you need to check with somebody else to actually buy the treadmill. Anyway, I thought the guy was going to pop him one, to be honest with you, Patrick. And what ended up happening was the guy went into his pocketbook, pulled out the credit card, and his ego paid for the treadmill. Sure. And, and once the customer left the store, the manager turned to me and said, see, Frank, that's how it's done. And when he gave me that lesson, I felt at the back of my mind that I felt that that's not how it's done. In fact, what, what I started to look at and I started to talk about it internally was I never want a client driving home thinking, what did I just do? What did the guy just talk me into? And man, am I pissed off about it. Well, yeah. And it, because, it pissed you. I mean, it pissed you off enough that you did what you opened up a, a competing store or did you buy a, a fitness deep? I don't remember the, the details of what your next step was. So, so my next step from this environment, which I felt was very toxic, was to get myself out of there. So I looked at Fitness Depot's number one competitor at the time. Again, very small organization. At the time, they had one store in Vaughan, just north of Toronto. 
And I sat down with the owner and I shared with him some of my experiences that I was having. And I said, listen, I need a change. I'd be willing to work here. And at the time, to be honest with you, Patrick, I took a pay cut to go there. And I said, if you're telling me that you're willing to build something bigger than what you have here, I will leave the fitness depot and the time that I've had there and we'll start something here. And within the first 12 months, he allowed me to open up his second store, which I invested in. I mean, at the time I was, um, now we're pushing, now I'm looking like I'm about 25, 26 years old. Me and my fiance at the time, we had bought our first house. It was 1999. And what I said to her was, I'm going to use the money from our house to invest in this business opportunity to open up a second store. And and that's essentially what I helped the gentleman do. So we ended up opening up a store in Mississauga. And then from there, I started recruiting the top people at Fitness Depot that had shared some of my philosophy about how fitness should be presented to the, to the masses, which is not a hustle, not a sale, but something that is genuinely an improvement to their life if they buy into it, but not from a, just a monetary perspective. I always felt, Patrick, that if the byproduct of what you're doing is healthy, again, I'm repeating myself, the money will come, right? So it's almost like, you know, I go to the gym, not just to be at the gym, but I do realize that if I do the reps, the byproduct will be that I'll have a better looking body maybe than I had, or I'll feel better. So the byproduct of helping people the right way, in my mind, was that we were going to have a very healthy business. Don't worry about trying to get their money. That's not very important at this point. What's important is you need to have their genuine, sincere trust. Meaning, are you really trying to help somebody go from A to B, or are you just trying to make a sale? Because if you trick your mind into thinking that, oh, well, I'm really just trying to make a sale, but I'm going to try and be sincere. It doesn't work that way. You either really do believe it or you don't. And I just started recruiting like-minded guys saying, hey, we can build an organization here that I think will put others to shame. And with a very short period of time, I would say within three to four years, we were the number one player in Ontario. We went from two stores to 11 stores, and we had a very viable internet business all around the premise of selling. And that was our catchphrase. We don't sell. We provide a better quality of life. So, you know, in that, in that, per, in that basic business model, and I don't want to call it basic, in that fundamental, you know, that foundational philosophy that you had around the model that you were building, I see often where businesses that, you know, take their, they start up, they go on, but then they get into this, maybe some, a little bit of survival mode. Maybe business is not as robust as they hoped it would be. And, and when you get into survival and when you get into, holy cow, how am I going to pay my staff? How am I going to pay my bills? How am I going to pay my rent? Those kinds of conversations. That's where often the sacrifice of a philosophy of an integrity-based sale can really take things off the rails because really now it's survival. It's I got to make a sale and I got to make money. And did you ever go through that phase and still had to stick to your core philosophy? And did you get tested in that core philosophy as you grew that business, uh, Frank? You know what? I, I love the question because absolutely, Patrick, every day. So it was always a struggle meeting payroll, paying suppliers. Um, you know, one of the things that even at Home Depot was instilled with, which was sell what's available today. Meaning if it's in stock, it's the right product for the client. Right. And that obviously went against some of my core values. So what I started to do with the sales staff, because I was 
you know, responsible for training them was I started to use a word in its most practical sense every day, which was called transparency. And when a client came in the door, I would be transparent with them about the fact that we had inventory that we bought and that I can actually give you a better deal on that inventory versus me trying to get you maybe exactly what you want, but it's going to cost you a little more. And I just started having transparent conversations with the staff and with clients in a way that made them understand that, we, yes, we believe in fitness. Yes, we believe in all these things, but there is the practical side. And I felt that as long as I was transparent with the customer saying, hey, I'm bringing you to this treadmill, to be honest with you, because it's in stock. And the fact that it's in stock means I can deliver it tomorrow, and it means that I can get you going tomorrow. You know what? Is there another treadmill that might suit your needs slightly a little bit better? Of course. And I can probably get it for you. And it might take me four weeks to get it. And you might walk out and get it from another competitor, maybe a little more readily than I can provide it. And I can't tell you how many times that the transparency part of my conversation with the client, they would actually buy what I had available. Simply because I didn't, and I hate to use this language, but I didn't bullshit the customer. I was just, I was just authentic with them and saying, hey, listen, yeah, we're running a business here. I wish we could stock everything all the time, every time, but there are certain things that prevent us from doing so. And we started taking those challenges on on a case-by-case basis because you know sometimes it'd be a supplier saying, hey, listen, you haven't paid us for this 90-day shipment that we gave you terms on. And we would turn to the supplier and say the same thing. Hey, listen, we're promoting your brand here. If you give us an extra few weeks, you know what I mean, to do this, this or that, And we started working with suppliers also in a transparent way that made them realize that every day we were on that floor, we weren't just promoting the fitness source brand, which is where I ended up, but we were also promoting their brand. So if I was selling a vision treadmill or a life fitness treadmill or a land ice treadmill, and they started to see that the integrity part of the sale mattered to their brand and not just the numbers. And of course, let's not be foolish here. Numbers and meeting your quarter and your quotas, of course they matter. But at some point, a business has got to say, am I just looking to eat today? Am I looking to eat for a week? Or do I want this brand to last several years and maybe decades down the road? And and that was a choice that we made with suppliers to say, hey, if you as a supplier are looking to be in today and gone tomorrow, we might not be the best guys for you. But if you're looking to actually build your brand that somewhere down the road, people say, hey, I'd like to buy my second vision treadmill or my third vision product or this, then we're your guys. And we need a little bit of your help. And and there were struggles, Patrick. There were times that we were obviously faced with hard decisions. In fact, the partners, we didn't pull out any money in the first few years, even though we could. But we didn't because we needed to save it for a rainy day because of the things you you said. And and I feel proud about those decisions. So when you look at your, so you grew that business to what, 13 stores, did you say? That's correct. Now, eventually you sold that business. And I want to talk a little bit about that. But how long, so how long did you were you involved in that business and and what was the time frame of those 13 stores? So started in 2000 and I was out by 2007, 2008, which is about the time period that the Frizzani group, the guys that own sport check sport Mart and, and a few other, you know, national chains, they approached us to buy our organization and they wanted to refranchise the model. So I stayed on as their district refranchise model guy for the first year. But I got to be honest with you, I started facing a lot of those integrity questions again 
when when they got involved. And what did the and so does now that, does that franchise still exist or what do they call it now or what did they eventually do with it? Just out of curiosity. So within a year of that time period, so we sell to Ferzani Group. A year later, the Canadian Tire Group ends up buying the Ferzani Group out, exactly, which is an even bigger, which is an even bigger monster. And they end up closing down all the fitness source stores. Got it. Which, which is amazing to me because, but a lot of what their philosophy was was to buy the competition and close them down. So when you uh, when you look back at that, I mean, once again, you learned a lot. You you profited on the sale of the business. You guys made some money, and uh, that's right. And then you did your thing. Then you took some time. You kind of, uh, I think you you slowed down a little bit, kind of reflected, and what you were going to do next. And then real estate showed up for you. Is that is that is that actually the kind of the scenario and the and the series of events that occurred? Absolutely. So a major shift happens to me in 2007, which is, um, you know, I had been with the same girl since I was 16. Um, and in 2007, I would have been 35 years old at the time. You know, mortgage free. I was good. There was no issues. And my wife comes home one day and tells me, you know what, Frank, we're expecting a baby. Right. And and I knew the kind of father I wanted to be, which is I wanted to be around. You know, my father provided for us. My parents obviously provided for us, but they were never around in the sense that they were always at work trying to make ends meet. And I didn't want to be that person. So in 2007, I start assessing again, what do I firmly believe in? And what can I do as my next, you know, viable step? And what started coming back to me was that the first home I bought, which was in 1999, and I started to look at the value of that home allowed me to buy into the business that created some freedom for me that I would not have otherwise had. And then I started looking at how my parents owned their home and every family member owned their home. And I, and I had people in my world that were renters for a long time and were always struggling. And I started to realize that I really believed in home ownership in a very big way, owning that in which you live in and real estate and, and what it did for me personally. So I started to immerse myself with trying to learn everything I could about real estate. And I started attending countless seminars. I mean, you name it, I was there. And I, and I ended up meeting at a seminar a very influential person that's a part of my life today, Richard Dolan, who's also a very important part of the RAIN organization, as we know. And Richard, from the stage, was probably, not probably, he was the most charismatic person I have ever heard speak from the stage, even though I was, again, you know, at countless seminars. And there was a certain familiarity about Richard that I couldn't quite place, but I felt that I knew the person. So he gets off the stage and it ends up after us talking a little bit, because he said, you know, I do countless seminars, Frank, maybe you see me at other ones or I've done stuff in the U.S. And it was more personal than that. It turned out that Richard ended up buying a product from my store and I helped him. Oh, there you go. And, and we started connecting the dots that we lived in the same neighborhood and we had a lot of similarities. Anyway, I just started to, and where I've always believed this is I started to surround myself with people that were better than me all the time, every time in something that I was trying to learn. So, you know, one of the lessons that my dad taught me was, you know what, son, if you want to hang with nine broke friends, you might as well be the 10th one. Or if you want to be a doctor, you might as well hang out with other doctors. 
So I made it my point to kind of immerse myself with people that were more intelligent, sharper, whatever have you, more knowledgeable. And I started shadowing Richard in a very big way. Again, more and more seminars and just getting myself immersed. I ended up getting my real estate license. And I started to really just mimic everything that I had done up until that point with music and fitness, which is I, when I stand in front of a client, I really believe in home ownership. And I start there, whether it be a first time home buyer or somebody who's owned a home for a while, I start to say, well, how are you using this home to really benefit your life and the things that you want? Because it doesn't necessarily have to be just a transaction. It could be something more important. And I looked at how my own life was affected by this asset called the personal home and how I utilized it and what I did. And I started to just implement that in my philosophy of, man, am I passionate about this stuff? I really like when, when somebody tells me that they don't own their own home, they might as well tell me that they're smoking cigarettes, which I don't believe in either and causing them cancer. I believe that passionately about owning real estate and use it in a way that can give you the things you've always wanted in your life, whatever they may be. You might want to be a ballerina, real estate might help you. You want to be a musician, real estate can help you. You want to be, you know what I mean? A seamstress, like my mom, real estate can help you because that's what she does out of the basement of her home right now. So I start looking at all those things and that's how the transition from fitness was very natural for me into real estate simply because I believed in it. I didn't feel, and then Patrick, I got to tell you, I can't tell you how many people told me, Frank, you're not going to really survive in real estate because it's a bit of a shark tank. Um, you know, realtors are liars and you don't strike me as the kind of guy that can bend the truth. So you might not end up doing too good. And there's 40,000 realtors. Chances are you're not going to make it. And I said to them, you know, I'm not trying to be a realtor. What I, I might be a realtor, but that's not what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to elevate the ability and the experience people have around the conversation called real estate. So you, the fact you, that I happen to, yeah, I mean, and, and you actually, you know, not only did you survive being a realtor, you've thrived as a realtor. So, I mean, you've built a great business. You, you are, your reputation is incredibly solid for being that person that supports the success of others. Now, I want to just go in a little, only slightly different direction, all related to real estate and where you are today and how you get here. But just quickly define, what is your definition of success? I mean, we know it's not about the money. That's a result of that. So a result of your passion and, and being true to what you want to achieve and who you are. So how do you define success? Do you have a kind of a explanation for your own definition of it? Yeah, you know, I, I spend a lot of time thinking about that almost every day, Patrick, to be honest with you, I start my day with trying to define what success is for me. And the amazing thing about that word is it's a bit of a moving target. It's, um, it's an anomaly for me in the sense that what you might have thought success was 10 years ago might be completely different than what you think success is today. And first and foremost, I know one aspect of it that's never changed for me is that in order for me to consider myself successful, my mind and my body need to be healthy. And those around me, as best I can influence them, need to have a healthy mind. And when I mean healthy mind, you know, a mind that is wakes up in the morning being happy. I mean, like if, if I wake up in the morning and I don't have the happiness bug, then 
I don't care how many zeros are in my bank account or how many pieces of real estate or how many transactions I've done. There is no way that I'm happy. So, okay, but slow down, slow down. Okay, so I'm going to slow you down here because I don't want to step over this because, you know, I know that there will be a number of listeners and people in general that are saying, well, you know, how do you find happiness? Because there's, there's such a, uh, it's a, it's a drive that people are always looking for happiness. They're searching for happiness. That's a common thing. You, you seem to expect it. So what is it that you do specifically if there is that you can kind of check in? Yeah, no, I'm feeling happy. And if you don't, what do you do? And, and how do you, how do you even arrive at that word called happiness for you? So I have, um, like a natural reset button in my mind that anytime I'm feeling that I'm not happy or I'm not in that state of mind, I start to just, you know, dissect, well, why is that? And I just start from ground zero and I don't want to oversimplify it, but I have a couple of little stories that help recalibrate my mind. You know, years ago I read, um, in a book and I can't remember the title of the book, but it was a great little synopsis of an Indian chief sitting in front of his village and He's talking about a man walking through the forest in deep sorrow. And the man sits down on a rock and is approached by the animals of the forest. So the deer comes up to the man and says, you know, why are you so sad? The man says, you know, I wish I could run free like you, the deer, but I got, you know, these responsibilities. And then a bird perches over the man and says, you know, why are you so sad, man? And the man says, well, I wish I could fly the way you fly bird and see from the sky and one by one all the animals of the forest talk to the man and say to him you know what we will give you all our attributes so the bird says if i could give you my flight and the snake's cunningness and the tiger's you know ferociousness and courage and all the things and and yet the man was still sad the chief says and one of the people from the village turns to him and says well why is the man still sad And he said, well, the man is still sad because he has this deep loneliness, an emptiness that needs to continually be fulfilled. And he keeps taking from the earth and he keeps taking and taking and taking. And he's not realizing that the more he takes, the more empty he feels. And that story stuck with me in the sense that, you know, when I was 10 or 12 years old and I didn't have much, I felt pretty happy. And then when I was 18, 19, I had a bit more things. But I wasn't any different in my happiness. And, and I started observing people with money, a lot of it, and still there was this unhappiness about them. And, and I learned a lot of that in the fitness world because a lot of times, Patrick, people would come into my store, very wealthy individuals, you know, because in a retail environment, you get everybody, right? I had very accomplished individuals coming in to want to better themselves. And they would tell me about their, you know, themselves being unhappy. And I'm just... For me, it was a calibration. So anytime my brain, Patrick, goes into this mode of feeling unhappy, I start looking at the most basic things that I have, and I find happiness with what I already have. The fact that I can take a breath of oxygen, to me, makes me happy. Because there's some people that might not be able to have that next breath. And I look at it that simply. The fact that I can turn on a faucet when I wake up and there's water there, man, I'm jacked about just that feeling alone. And, and I start to just simply, anytime my mind wanders into a reason to be unhappy, I recalibrate and start to wander back to why I should be happy. So you look, and I should be happy. So you look, uh, you look, you're really looking at all the reasons that you can be grateful and all the things that you can, you know, all of the, 
you just express gratitude in the realities of the most simple things in life that we take for granted, you know, we might want to consider that we shouldn't necessarily take them for granted. You know, we look at, you know, at, at what's going on in, in the world of environmental, you know, catastrophes from hurricanes to tornadoes to, you know, floods and all the things that go on. And when those things are removed, the simple things, like you say, being able to turn on a water tap is, uh, is, is, is much reason to celebrate and to actually have some gratitude. And we just get, that becomes normalized, I think, for us in, in the culture that we live in in Canada today. You said it best. And, you know, I always, you know, when I have this conversation, even with friends and family, I always tell them, you know, you can't really wait to watch a catastrophe on CNN to appreciate that which you have. And if you're if that happens, what ends up happening is it's a momentary Band-Aid fix to your unhappiness. But if it's something, again, it's got to be sincere. Like I sincerely look at it and say, well, why shouldn't I be happy that I have that little bit of oxygen to breathe today that some people might not have, or that ability to wake up in the morning and kiss my son on the forehead. Or again, I mean, I start every day pretty well, Patrick, with addressing it in that way for me. And and the minute I, I guess, you know, our mind is a very complex thing for everybody. And I look at our minds, not that I'm a psychology major or anything of that nature, but I look at our minds like anything else. I used to take foul shots and there was a time where I couldn't hit a foul shot. I was young, but I'm like, when will I be able to actually get good at this? Well, the more I did and the more I practiced and the more I looked at the precision of how my hand needs to be, the better I got at shooting foul shots. So I started to look at my mind like anything else I did. The more I practice at why I become unhappy versus happy, the better I'll be at being happy. And I just started to catch myself that when I'm unhappy, this is the way my mind starts to think. So I looked at it a very simple way. Well, then start adjusting the way you think and you'll start adjusting how happiness is to you. And to me, success without happiness is not is not definable, meaning I don't see success without happiness being at the pinnacle of the pyramid. So you would, so it sounds like you would actually define, you know, perhaps how you train physically is very intentional. So you are active in basketball and you like to shoot hoops and do all the things until somebody elbows you in the nose and breaks it. As you that's right. recently had to happen. And, that's, and so, that's right. so you train physically and you're very, uh, conscious of you know what you eat and how you do that. So then, really, you're training your mind, not unlike you are physically. It's very intentional. It's not just happening to you. You're being very conscious of your thought processes and and where you need to step back and and really investigate what's going on for you mentally, emotionally, spiritually, perhaps. Absolutely. And I can't take credit for that. I can't take all the credit for that. I mean, to be honest with you, I'm a collector of good ideas, and I read as often as I train. Meaning. You know, every time, whether I'm speaking to somebody and, and picking up ideas, but reading is always been, ever since I can remember, as young as, I don't know, I would say maybe grade one or grade two, reading has been the, an intricate component of my life just as much as the fitness aspect. But I guess that's just, you know, that's not unlike what you do when you train physically, right? You have tools. In this case, we're now, we have books that are tools. We're using that information and those that perspective and insights from others as part of our training regiment and the tools that we're going to use to train. And let me just kind of address a couple of things. So I'm, I'm interested in, a, in your perspective on a couple of things because you, you work with a lot of real estate investors. You work with just 
people in general that are buying real estate for the reasons they're buying it. And you're also surrounded with entrepreneurs. Do you see a common, and once again, it's only your perspective. Is there one or two or three commonalities? Let's just call it in, let's, let's narrow it down to real estate investors that get in their way of having success. Is there something that you see time and time again, given your experience? Yeah, I would say probably the the most common one is not trusting anybody's um, advice. So they're they they they're putting a team together, and then they're not necessarily trusting the person that they put on their team. Exactly. You either didn't vet your team correctly to begin with, and that's why you can't trust them. And when I use the word trust, I don't necessarily mean in the sense that they think they're going to do something wrong, but in the sense that they don't feel confident enough to act on that information. For, for whatever reason, something's holding them back, right? Um, and I would probably say that the second one is overanalyzing. The, the biggest problem I see in real estate investors, Patrick, is at least the ones that are not very effective are the ones that are overanalyzing. And they take in a lot of information, overanalyze, but at a certain point, you need to actually act. And I, I, I remember another quote that helps me with clients. They call it fear being your counselor, not your jailer. And what that means is, you know, if you're about to cross the street, you should have a certain level of fear, meaning that you're going to look both ways before you cross. But it shouldn't prevent you from crossing the street that you might be able to get hit by a car. You want to be able to look both ways and then have enough confidence to say, well, now I'm going to cross because I look both ways. And a lot of investors, that's what happens to them. So in, in, as we continue on in the conversation around you know, what gets in people's way, on the other side of that, what do you see as a commonality, whether it be with real estate investors or business owners, because you know a lot of both, what, is there a, a particular characteristic, like one, maybe two top ones for you that you see consistently with uh, the individuals that you recognize have had a great deal of success in their businesses or in their real estate investing lives? I think, um, so some of the characteristics I've seen, A, for sure, they're willing to take responsible chances. I mean, I I don't want to say that they just throw caution to win, but they do take chances. They take responsible chances. And I think the second big big one is that they um, they don't count on too many of the people around them in a sense, like in their family life. I always call it the spoiler. So if a person wants to go buy a piece of real estate, the first thing he's going to do is maybe ask a few people that are not necessarily part of his real estate team, but he might ask a wife, a cousin, an uncle, a dad. And what ends up happening is somebody in their inner circle ends up talking them out of it. And the ones that are actually very effective don't get talked out of their opinion or how they come up with their thoughts. And I'm one of those guys. I mean, I can't, again, I get a lot of people trying to talk me out of stuff, but I trust my decision once it's been vetted. I don't, go back and start to feel insecure about what I did. And I can tell you that the investors that have done very well do not feel insecure. Actually, I should rephrase that. They may feel insecure about a certain decision, but will not act on the insecurity. So they they may second guess their decision, but they continue to move forward regard. Or actually, they don't second guess their decision. They've made it. And although they may have a brief moment of going, mm, I'm not sure, they just let it go and continue. Exactly. It's almost like trusting the plan based on, you know, I I hate to always speak in analogies, but I remember watching a movie about Mount Everest where a Sherpa takes people up the mountain 
And he starts telling them, listen, as you go up higher up in the mountain, you're getting less oxygen and your brain doesn't function the way it did when it's on the ground. You can't trust your decision making on the mountain. You got to trust whatever you've written down so that when you experience something you experience up there, you don't act on it. So I look at investing the same way. As you go deeper into the investment, you start to start to second guess yourself. That's natural. Your emotions are starting to play in. But what happens is if you act on that information, it's like you're acting on a decision where you didn't have enough oxygen to begin with and you might end up dying on the mountain. Got it. So give me, okay, so we're going to, we're going to start wrapping up. We got to start kind of getting, I want to get really focused on uh, some things with you. So tell me about your biggest failure that turned out to be a blessing in disguise. You got one? I do. I think it's a very good one. Um, So last year I'm helping a client with a $2 million listing and everything about this listing was a bit difficult from the amount of money they wanted to get for the property to the showings to you name it. So anyway, the listing's up there for about a month and we finally get an offer and the offer was decent. We get it signed and within four days, the fifth day was obviously the the last day of the conditional period. On the fourth day, the client that was buying the property decides to pull out. My client was so upset, and this never happened to me before, but was so upset that the deal had fallen apart that because he was already looking at other properties and about to commit on something else that he turns to me and says, you know what, Frank, I don't want you representing me on the property anymore. I'm essentially firing you and I'm going to use another realtor to list the property. And I was devastated because I had spent at least a several thousand dollars on between, you know, brochures, virtual tour, um, you know, staging, you name it on this property. And we were so close and all of a sudden it falls apart. And furthermore, he was a very prominent individual in, in the neighborhood. Like, you know, people knew this guy, you know, I, I started, my mind started playing tricks on me. My wife saw that I was very distraught and she's like, Frank, just let it go. Just let it go was what she was saying to me almost on a regular basis. And I couldn't let it go. And the fact is I had the gentleman under contract, which means that he couldn't actually hire another realtor. But I said to him that I didn't want to keep him against his will. So even though the brokerage I was representing said, Frank, you don't have to let him out of the contract. And I knew what was going to happen because it was a hot market. I let him out of the contract. And within a week, his property sells to somebody else with another realtor for the same money that we had done. And what was crazy, Patrick, is that that deal also falls apart. In fact, the deal falls apart two more times. And he eventually sells with this realtor. And I don't hear from him for about four or five months. And after his closing, he calls me up and he tells me that I was the best realtor he ever had. And he regretted every day letting me go. And that he still needed to buy a new property and he wasn't going to use the guys that he used. And he said the reason why he stuck with me was because I didn't hold him hostage to the agreement. And the fact that I put, you know, the way he saw it, his family's interests ahead of my own, because that's what I said to him on the conversation. I said, if you feel you need to do this because you feel it's right for your family, and even though I'm advising you otherwise, it would, to make a long story short, Patrick, not only did this gentleman buy another property with me, I've helped him on several other properties since then, because now he's become a real estate investor with me. And I can't tell you how many people told me, you know, cut this guy loose, forget about him. 
and, um, you know, give them a piece of your mind, so to speak. I got a lot of that advice, but I just didn't know that that was right. And, and I look at that as a, as a victory in the sense that he wins and I win. And I was able to turn a very, very big negative into a very big positive in my mind. You know, you talked about some of the, you know, your view of life and what you look at and what you want to be, you, you know, you're thinking many moves ahead. Um, are you a goal setter? Like, are you saying, you know, are you measuring your success against some goals that you've set for yourself, some specific outcomes that you've, you, that you're setting for yourself in the future? Or how do you, how do you kind of manage and do you set milestones to say, okay, I'm on track. I'm doing what I want to do. I'm achieving the results I want to achieve. Are you a goal setter that way? I, I am. I'm definitely a goal setter that way. More, um, not so much in the conventional sense where I don't necessarily write them down. I know a lot of, you know, very driven folks will write down goals and, you know, start plotting it out. Mine are more on a daily, you know, transformational basis. So one of my milestones is to have, you know, anywhere between 10 to 15 properties by the age of 50. Now I'm up to, I'm up to four properties now. I mean, I remember, you know, long ago, I think I was maybe 20, my mid twenties. One of my goals was to have, you know, a house and, you know, let's say two BMWs in the garage. I was able to achieve that by, by 28. I wanted to be mortgage free by 35. And I, I didn't write it down, but I was mortgage free by 35. I wanted to be, you know, a millionaire, let's say by the time, or at least have a million, you know, multi-millions, you know, by a certain age. And I was able to, you know, have at least, I think I'm in the neighborhood now, maybe Patrick, just to volunteer. I would say I'm in the range of four to 5 million in real estate assets, you know what I mean, that are paid off. And, you know, I don't consider myself, you know, a millionaire in the conventional sense, but my next goal is to be like, I would say 10 to 15 properties by the age of 50. I'll tell you that my more specific goals are around the emotional context of my life and those around me. Those ones I get very, you know, are hand in hand. So I don't, I don't look at one and separate them. It's almost like a melting pot, if you will. Like if I don't have the 15 properties, I look at remodifying the goals. So I know one of my major goals was to be a developer, you know, in real estate. And now I'm part of a very major organization called Design Generation that that's exactly what we do. So we're developers looking for other projects, you know what I mean, that we can expand on. And I'm looking for having those mile. And I, I know I'm kind of speaking in circles here, but Patrick, but the milestones I have, because they're a bit of an enigma, kind of like what I said to you before, which success is a little bit of a recalibration for me every day, that I try and not die on that mountain, meaning if I don't achieve this particular thing that I said that I was going to do, is it going to completely define me or break me? Not necessarily so, but I, I really find that every time I put something in my head and I'm driven for the right reasons to get it, it comes my way. It's almost like the laws of attraction. I feel that the universe is conspiring to help me every day because I'm holding those values to be that. That's great. So as we start to wind down, I'd like to get into some, you know, I wanna, I'm gonna I'm gonna get into some rapid fire questions shortly, but before I do, um, some slightly less rapid fire questions that I would like to, you know, from a perspective of, you know, you've you've achieved some really big financial uh, goals. Uh, certainly, you're in the you know the top you know one percent of one percent of what people have achieved financially. 
you've done some amazing things in your life in terms of the results that you've achieved. You know, what would you tell your your 20-year-old self knowing what you know now? What would you tell yourself at 20? What would what would it be different for you? I would um I would probably tell my 20-year-old self to trust my instinct more than I have. I mean, I I have, but there were a few times along the way where I doubted my instincts. And you know that that proverb, you know, what your gut is telling you is probably right. Yeah. My guts my gut has been right every single time. And there's been times that I've gone against it. Yeah. Isn't it interesting that, I don't know, do, you, do we ever really get that lesson? I, I guess some people do. I know myself that my gut will tell me I'll second guess it. And uh, yeah. And ultimately it shows up that, ah, hey. darn it. And, and, and you know what? I, I can say this honestly too, Patrick, and we're, we're in the same room often. Most of the things that whether I'm saying or you're saying, or people hear, whether it's in the rain room or in a book that they read, a lot of times, these are not new revelations. Oh, of course per se. not. No, no, no. Of course. Right? The challenge that most people have is actually being able to implement that which they already know. And it's amazing to me that people will know something and just not be able to implement it for whatever psychological reason they might be having in their day, week, or month. It's like instinctively, you know, but yet you go against the grain. And that's why these self-help books make so much money because- they just got another one that kind of perpetuates it instead of saying, Hey, when are you going to actually empower yourself? Yeah. When are you going to say, Hey, it's not in the book anymore. It's actually all in your head. Okay. So we're going to expand on this question. What do you want to tell your 70 year old self? You know what? My 70 year old self, I think I'm going to give that 70 year old self the same advice, which would be, have you been trusting your instincts? I mean, and where that comes from, Patrick, I was in a lawyer's office when I was cutting my first deal um, in the fitness world when we were about to sign the agreement um, and to sell the business. And there was a poster with a little boy on a dock. And the poster read, one day the world is not going to care about how many houses you own, how many cars and what kind you've driven and how much zeros are in your bank account. But the world may remember if you made the difference in a little boy's life. Mm. And as we said, Patrick, the extra zeros are very meaningless if if they haven't brought a certain level of completion and happiness to your life and those around you. Okay, so we're going to wind down here, buddy. So we're going to speed up the last little bit. And okay, thanks for all your insights, good analogies, good stories, lots of lessons in this conversation. And, uh, you know, it's really helped me to get to know you a little bit better at, a, you know, in, in some of the details that, of course, we, we never really get an opportunity to sit down and, uh, and have conversations around. So thanks for the time and, and your efforts in uh, being a real contribution to the Everyday Millionaire podcast. So some rapid fire questions. What's your favorite swear word, buddy? You know what? I got to tell you that I almost rarely ever, if ever, swear. Okay, so what's your favorite, you know, expression of anger, frustration, annoyance? I would have to say the four-letter word. F-U-C-K. Okay, so you drop the occasional F-bomb. In all of your purity and wholeness, you do drop the occasional F-bomb. You know, what I love about it is when I use it, it has real impact because I only use it under the most extreme of measures. So I almost find it almost is a, a therapeutic thing for me to actually <laughs> be able to say it when and I do. And everybody around gets that you get everybody's attention. They're going, whoa, Frank just F-bombed. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, and when... 
Yeah. What what profession other than your own would you like to attempt next? Other than being a realtor and real estate investor and developer, if it wasn't any of that or music, what would it be? I think it would be um I would probably there was two actually. One private investigator. Yeah. And the second one would probably be psychology of some kind. Okay. Not, I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated by the two. Okay, cool. Um, if heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? Mm. Probably just thank you. I On think a, that that's... That's it? Yeah. That's great. That's it. On a scale of one to ten, how weird are you? I would say, hmm, that's an interesting question, Patrick. I would say 10. Mm -hmm. I would, I would concur. You know, there's an interesting thing about, you know, your nature, Frank, and, and we joke about being weird and, and you're certainly, you're as weird as any of us, right? So I just like to see how you hold yourself, but there's an interesting, uh, energy about Frank Felico and, uh, and I've, you know, I've had other people share this with me. You're one of those individuals that when you're meeting face to face energetically, it's there's there's every part of you that is likable right off the bat. And I think that's an that's an interesting quality, but it's an odd quality. So maybe that's part of the weirdness, right? I that's a major major compliment, Patrick. And especially it, coming from you, I appreciate it. And it is meant as a compliment. Um what are you not very good at, Frank? You know what? I'm not very good at disguising how I feel. You wear it? So I, I wear it. I'm pretty much what you see is what you get. Like, you know, there's there's oftentimes that that vulnerability I wish I had a bit more control over. Um, but at a at a real young age, I just learned to embrace it and I and I know that I'm not a poker face kind of guy. Yeah. I uh I've been accused of that as well. Room, desk, or your car? What do you clean first? Car. Your car. Yeah, you you like a yeah. I mean, yeah, you like a clean car. I know that about you. Yeah. Uh, what's car your okay? Always. So here, Mister Music Man, what's your favorite tune? Ooh, this is a this is a major one. Um, major question, Patrick, because depending on my mood, it could be different. But I'll tell you. That if I had to just pick one that hits me pretty well every time, it would have to be something from the Beatles. I'm just trying to think now what. Um, probably John Lennon, Working Class Hero. Mm. I don't know if you know that song. Yeah, I sure do. And, and as soon as you said Beatles, it was just like, oh my gosh, there's such a large list. So good for you. What? Okay, then what about your favorite band? Your favorite group? Favorite band... Favorite band would have to be the Beatles as well. Doors is is right there. A close second is the Doors. Yeah. Um, but Beatles, just because of the sheer volume of work and um, and how profound so much of their material was and is. Favorite movie? Gladiator. What are you grateful for? Every, I know this is going to sound big, but everything. But most of all, I would say just having life. Mm. I mean, I think about how hard it was to be born, right? Like how many eggs, how many sperm, not to be vulgar, but the the magic of this individual, me being here, 
and the probability in all that having to actually happen to even exist is a remarkable thing in my mind. You know, it's interesting that of, of these, you know, rapid fire questions, I get to end the podcast generally on that question. And I ask it of guests. And what I'm discovered for myself is that every time I ask that question, I get an answer from my guest, but it also puts me into a place of gratitude for so many different things. And it's never consistent. I'm, I'm always grateful to have the guest, you know, I'm always, you know, grateful to be able to have the opportunity to learn and listen and to share, you know, the lessons with the listeners of the everyday millionaire podcast. And often I'm just grateful because I'm realizing that I'm having a conversation with somebody that I know, or I know well, or that is an exceptionally good acquaintance. And I'm just grateful for having a life where I get to meet some pretty cool people that have really achieved some results. And, and certainly Frank, uh, I'm grateful for having had the opportunity to get you to know you over the years and, uh, and grateful for the, uh, for you being on the show today. So I want to say thank you. And you know what? It's feelings mutual, Patrick. Like I said, I was looking forward to it um, for pretty well since you asked me because I know the kind of conversations that we have are never um, superficial in the sense, even when they're not being recorded, you and I have always had a way of getting to real talk versus small talk. Yeah. And, and, and you don't get that with everybody in this world. And, and I'm appreciative of that. Like I said, whether it was on a podcast or otherwise, I know our lives are busy sometimes, but these, these moments allow us to kind of, you know, get to the heart of the matter. So I appreciate that. Get grounded. Well, again, thanks, buddy. And we will, uh, we'll see you probably in Toronto in the very, very near future. And uh, looking forward to getting together. And uh, thanks again, Phil. You can count on it. Take care, Patrick. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. If you found value in the podcast, please take the time to rate and review and share with others. Share with your friends. As it is my goal to always improve and to provide the highest value for you, the listener, if you have any comments, suggestions, or questions you'd like answered, please email me at ceo at raincanada.com. That's ceo at reincanada.com. I look forward to hearing from you. And until next time, Patrick out.